the sounds, the dulcet sounds of the Kickass audio track here on Fuzzy Logic. Now, what do you do when you meet a person for the first time, or in fact, at any time? Here's a quick question for you. What do you do? I'll give you a moment to think about that. Okay, that's your moment. The answer is, you talk to them. And it's not just the words you use, it's the way you use your voice. And so today, our topic is the human voice. And who better to talk to about voice than our special guest today, Dr. Kate Maddell. <laughs> and I got that right. The director of the Voice Research Laboratory at the University of Sydney. Welcome to Fuzzy Logic. Thank you very much, Rod. Good morning. And also uh, to round out our studio here, author and fantasy novelist KJ Taylor. And Katie is on a bit of a high at the moment because she is fresh from having won the uh, University of Canberra Alumni Awards for Young Graduates and the Canberra Critics Circle Award for Writers in 2011. Welcome back to Fuzzy Logic, Katie. Verily, it is nice to be here. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Katie is the author of the uh, fantasy trilogy, The Fallen Moon, about griffins and so on. And I don't think... Oh, griffins do talk. Maybe we'll come on to that later. Yes, they do, in their own language. They've got (laughs) beaks, not lips, you see, so... And along the way, we've got some very interesting guests dropping in. Uh, You'll recognise the voices. A surprise guest who uh, you may or may not pick who this is. (laughs) We shall see. But first of all, Kate, what occupies most of your thinking in your day job? Well, my my job, I'm very lucky. I I do a lot of different things in my job, but the central focus is the human voice. I'm a speech pathologist and university academic and uh, have specialised in the voice Oh, for about the last 20 years, I started off as, a, as an actor years and years ago, and that's where I first developed my love and focus on the human voice. I remember in my fourth year of my acting degree, getting the opportunity to do an honours project whereby we could, I could get a group of people and we could look at a... Um, Uh, work on developing a performance piece around a Shakespearean sonnet and that was my first experience of realising that the huge range of sounds, not words but sounds the human voice can produce is so moving and really a fundamental part of the human condition. So that was where I first got inspired to, to work with voice and I was also very fortunate to encounter the work of, uh, of a woman called Jo Estel, who uh, sadly passed away last year. <clears throat> she was a, a, an opera singer in, uh, in uh, New York, who after finishing her opera singing career was completely fascinated with how the voice worked and why some voices were louder, more robust, could carry more easily, could convey more emotion than others. And so she embarked on this odyssey of investigation and she recruited some of the world's greatest voice scientists into her research to pursue this passion for finding out how it worked. And I was fortunate enough to encounter the results of that investigation. She developed a voice technique um, around those findings and it was the first time that a voice technique program had been developed on the findings of science um, and I encountered that in my acting degree, and I think I was so fortunate to have done that. 
um, that that really opened the door for me then to to explore all the things that voice is about um, because it it's such a an interesting area there's the science there's the culture there's um, the the song there's the individual there's the response to the voice as well as the production of the voice so it makes for a very very interesting work life Oh, well, it, it is a wonderful thing. And one thing I talked about on Fuzzy one day was a, a talk in which I put up the letters on the overhead projector Y-E-S. And I asked the people in the audience to say, can anybody say what this word is? And some people went, oh, well, yes. And I went, yes, yes. But there's so much information conveyed. Mm. Now, one thing that I find challenging about doing the radio, which I'm trying to work on, is when we kick off the show, it's it's like driving a nuclear power reactor in here. There's button, enough buttons to drive the SS Nimitz. <laughs> and we're doing a live swap between the Irish voice guys. Thanks, Declan. And it, it, there's a lot going on. Um, and it's very hard to keep the stress out of the voice. So to what extent do our emotions, how do we control our emotions or... What's the link between the emotions and voice? Thank you. That's the question. Well, it's, the, it's, a, it's a very deep and profound link. The nerves that supply our voice box, uh, there are two types. There are what we call the motor nerves, and they're the ones that we use to get our muscles to move. And usually most of that motor activity... Um, certainly from the voice point of view that we're used to thinking about, is uh, what we ask our voice to do. So I want to say something, I tell my body to do it, it does it. There's also nerves that we we, uh, sort of put in the group of what we call the autonomic nervous system, which is the nervous system that keeps us alive on a moment-to-moment basis. So we're sitting here having a chat unbeknownst to us and completely without our conscious attention our body is regulating our temperature it's regulating our heartbeat and our blood Mm. pressure it's digesting our breakfast or it's telling us we need something to eat Um, it's maintaining the balance of adrenaline and chemicals in our brain now what is fascinating about the voice and what a lot of people don't necessarily realize is that there are nerves that, that go to the voice box that are actually part of that autonomic nervous system that are about keeping us alive on a moment-to-moment basis. And most of us don't necessarily think about it until we get terribly nervous and suddenly our voice quavers or it gets stuck and we can't change it or our throat goes tight or we get a terrible fright. And there's lots of anecdotes about people getting... Uh, you know, terribly scared and not being able to use their voice at all because they've triggered their fight and flight response which is controlled by the autonomic nervous system and so we are design- our voice is actually part of that fight and flight response for two reasons one is, is that to run very fast, to run away very fast or to fight the predator, we need to get the maximum strength out of our arms and legs. That's how we beat them off. To do that, we actually have to make sure that the the structure those arms and legs are attached to, which is our torso, is terribly strong. Because we know the law of biomechanics is, is that if you want to get the maximum movement 
out of a limb or your fingers or whatever, whatever they're attached to has to be terribly stable. And your listeners can actually test this out if you like, and I'll get you to do it in the studio, Rod, because once you've done it, you'll understand it. So if you've got a pen and a piece of paper at home, and we'll just give you a moment to go and get that. <laughs> that <sounded nice. laughs> okay, there was your moment. Is that, is, is that the, that, that's the convention, I think, Rod, isn't it? That, that was me. I was nervous. I've left the studio. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's back again. And so what I'd like you to do, now that you have your pen and paper, is I'd like you to write your name as small and as neatly on the page in front of you. Oh, okay. Now, there's sound effects of me writing very smallly on the page. Rod Okay, I've done that. Okay. Now, what I'd like you to do is do exactly the same thing, but this time don't let any part of your writing hand or arm touch the table oh so I'm, I'm and okay. still write your name as small and as neatly as possible oh 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 dear okay so don't stabilize with your little there, finger a, don't jam your elbow against your body okay, okay listeners there is a uh, a drunken ant on in the studio at the moment and it's like a meandering its way across the desk <laughs> and it's kind of slurring the words and it's going yeah. and hopefully you at home will have also realized oh. that the result of your endeavour is now quite different from your first attempt. Oh, it's tragic. Yes. <laughs> it's so what have you, what's changed since the, the first and second attempt? Uh, well, the control, but I've lost control for some reason. That's I don't right. have the stabilising effect of my hand on the desk. That's correct. So, in fact, the laws of biomechanics say if you want to get the most out of a movement, a physical movement, whatever... Um, that is attached to. So if you want the most stability out of your arm, you want your shoulder and your upper torso to be stable. In writing, for your fingers to do those very small movements, you want your hand and your arm to be stabilised. So coming back to why the voice reacts to the fight and flight response, if we are going to run very fast or fight off a foe, we need maximum strength in our arms and legs, to do that, we want to stabilise our torso. To do that, we automatically hold our breath. Uh. And here's another, here's another proof of that, uh, that automatic response. If, uh, if at home you can actually put your hands together in a, in a prayer-like formation <laughs> and push very hard. Ready, set, Go. And are you holding your breath? We're all... Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that is... An, now, you can override it with your voluntary motor control, but your very first uh, response will be to get the strength in your arms is to hold your breath. Uh, so that's one of the reasons why the voice is so... Uh, inherent in the autonomic in the fight and flight response you're triggering that autonomic uh, activity of the of the voice box and, and maybe if there's a tiger after you it's better if you don't make any sound well yeah i mean ultimately it, will it matter at all <laughs> unless yes. there's someone there to save you well one thing i find being in the studio here is my temptation is to lean forward across the desk towards the microphone mm -hmm. and I, i'm always making this effort to sort of lean back and keep my torso fairly upright and relaxed but it's it's such a deliberate effort i have to really fight this urge because i, I i'm in a constant super concentrated mode here and i'm engaging mm -hmm. with our guest 
and I'm leaning into the mic and then before I know it, I'm slumbering like this and I'm probably not talking very well. No, that's right. And also you're concentrating terribly hard. Now, concentrating is another trigger to hold our breath. Again, it's the autonomic nervous system telling us that we're not attending to our airway. Uh, If we're concentrating very, very hard on something, we're not going to know what we're about to breathe in. And the, the voice box, the larynx, as we call it, its number one job is not to make sound in our body. Its number one job is to stop anything foreign getting into our lungs. So it's on guard for that uh, job every time we breathe in, which is, for us, we're just sitting here, our breathing's fairly calm. So that's every five seconds. This little valve that we use to sing and talk is actually on guard to stop anything foreign getting into our lungs. Ah, so in an evolutionary sense, is it one of those things where a body part has been evolved for some purpose and then um, has adapted, been adapted for another purpose? So the voice is an adaptation of this thing that keeps the food and the lumpy bits out of our lungs. That's correct. <laughs> Ultimately, the, the voice box is a closing valve. It is designed to close, to stop food, fluid, saliva, mosquitoes, smoke, (laughs) dust getting into our lungs because that would compromise our ability to breathe. And in fact, there's um, some... There's... there's, Just to to give you a little sort of quick tour of, of the voice box... Most people aren't aware that we actually have have two pairs of vocal folds, we call them in the business, or two pairs of vocal cords. Most people think we have one pair, but we don't. We actually have two. Now, the pair of vocal cords that we're used to, the most people know of, are the ones that we bring together very gently over the airstream. They flutter to make sound. What we call them is true vocal folds, and we call them folds because... They're not like rubber bands. They are made of muscle, but they're not rubber bands that sit across the airway. They're actually folds on the inside of the throat, and we've developed uh, skills to be able to pull them across from the inside. We have another set of vocal folds that sit just above our true vocal folds, Uh and they are called false vocal folds, and they are the culprit in so many voice problems, they are the culprit, Rod, that you're ex- you, you've talked to me earlier this morning about when your voice changes when you're nervous. The false vocal folds are not, made, not designed to make sound. They don't have the physical capacity to make the sounds that true vocal folds do. But they're very good for closing. So they're meant to close and block off the airway. And so what happens is that whenever we sense that our that we either have to run or fight or that our airway is going to be compromised in some way, we jam these two pairs of vocal folds together very tightly to protect our number one survival organ, which is our lungs. Um, Kate, are these folds a little bit like, you know, as a kid you've got a balloon and you kind of blow through, you know, you, a bit of a... A broken balloon and you'd, you'd blow through it and make a like a, a humming noise is that roughly the sort of the mechanism as it comes out as yeah. it, as you, well they vibrate like anything vibrates if you if it's light enough and you put an airstream over it so if in fact you get a tissue and you pull it tight but you make sure the very edge of it is is relaxed and loose so you're not pulling on it and you blow over the top of it 
it will vibrate and it will vibrate fast enough to make a sound. So in fact the balloon analogy demonstrates very well that vibration of a very light structure over an airstream. Uh, so if you've actually got two sets of vocal cords, I suppose you've heard of uh, Tibetan throat singing, I think it's called, where you sing two notes simultaneously. Does that second set of vocal cords have something to do with that? It, indeed it does, and in fact they've done some very interesting research and they continue to do so. In Tibetan throat singing, what happens is the what we call the false pair, the breath-holding pair of uh, muscles, is squeezed over the top, and what they do is when we squeeze them across, they actually press down on our true vocal cords and they, make, they interfere with that smooth vibration. And what's extraordinary about Tibetan throat singing is in fact the, the, the fundamental sound is a... <laughs> that's the sound and that's the result of pulling in your false vocal cords at the same time as you bring in your true ones and they press down and make the voice really croaky. <laughs> and then the second sound, and this is the most extraordinary thing about Tibetan throat singing, is, ma is made by manipulating the shape of the resonating tract, that is the throat and mouth and nose. And in fact what they do is they manipulate what we call the form and frequency. So that the change in the melody is not made with the vocal cords, it's actually made by changing the shape of their throat and their mouth above the level of the vocal cords. And oh. it is extraordinary. Kate, I've, I actually have some audio samples of Tibetan throat singing. Um, I might fetch it during one of the song breaks. But what you just did, what you did just now, it, was that actually the real thing or is that you, just your simulation of it? You, you... Oh, that was my very bad imitation of it because whilst I can squeeze my false vocal cords in and make that very gruff sound... What I'm not skilled in doing, and I believe it takes them many, many years to learn, is manipulating their throat to uh, get the melody of, of the formants, the formant frequencies, which is a bit hard to explain in simple terms, but essentially it's about manipulating the resonance. So, in fact, the melody is in the resonance, not in the vibration of the vocal cords. So it's the harmonics? Yes, that's it, the Rod. harmonics. So when you play, when you pluck the G string on a guitar, you get the resonance of the the body of the guitar, and the other strings vibrate a bit, and you get this beautiful resonant tone. I'm going to play something which, uh, speaking of uh, throat singing, <laughs> this is one to make your your mother uh, Blanche, well Blanche, or maybe turn down Cringe. the radio, go away. <laughs> and I'm waiting to see how our guest, Dr. Kate Maddell, responds when she hears this particular bit of singing. I'll, I'll announce it afterwards. Yep. You are listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show here on Community Radio 2 X. My name is Rod. In the guest, in the guest studio, guests with me today, Dr. Kate Maddell, who is the head of the research labs for voice at the University of Sydney, and KJ Taylor, also known as Katie, or go and clean up your room. <laughs> Ha, <laughs> 
Paul Kate, Paul Kate, our voice researcher, voice pathologist, has been subjected to some how ruck by the the group who is K- KMFDM. KMFDM here on Fuzzy Logic. Yes, and Kate is the director of voice research at the University of Sydney, and our special guest today, along with KJ Taylor. Um, but as you probably heard, the guy who was singing when he wasn't uh, digitally distorted was really going for it. Really, uh, well, they they call it growling, and apparently it was uh, first created um, by someone. I'm not sure when, but it was in about the early Metallica days, I believe. This guy wanted to sound like the devil, so he created growling. And um, I actually knew this guy once who, um, appropriately enough, ran a goth shop that sold, uh, you know, gothy items. And um, and I told him that I couldn't listen to growling, like really serious growling in music without cringing a bit because it just sounded so painful. And I said, I've heard it destroys your vocal cords and you end up talking like this, which is incidentally how I was talking on Friday evening. But that's another story. Anyway, and this guy told me, well, there is a right way and a wrong way of doing growling. If you do it the wrong way, you will destroy your vocal cords. Doing it the wrong way is doing it with your uh, throat. The right way, you use your stomach. I don't know if that's actually true, so I thought I'd ask our guest, is there a right way to do growling, or will it always inevitably destroy your vocal cords? Oh, that's an excellent question, Katie. I get asked this all the time. I figured. It's quite contentious. There is There are a number of voice people who actually believe that there is a right way to growl. <laughs> but... Well, ask our dog, yeah. <laughs> but from a scientific point of view, and what we know about how the voice box works... Uh, if you have healthy vocal cords to start with, the only way to growl is to squeeze your false vocal cords and the muscles around your uh, true vocal cords very, very, very tightly. What that does is it makes your vocal cords bang together very, very hard and in a way that actually it, they lose the smooth vibratory, vibratory movement. Now, the smooth vibratory movement of the vocal cords is what we hear as really clear and resonant and, and, and pleasant voicing. And it's the healthiest way to use your voice. The minute that you go like that, you are going to disrupt that nice smooth movement. And you've got to remember, the vocal cords are banging together when we're talking. When I'm talking about 180 times every second, Rod, when you're talking about 100 times per second, Katie, when you're talking probably up around maybe 190, 200 times per second. So that's a hell of a lot of friction. So if you're <laughs> going to actually then bang them harder together and, then, and disrupt the smooth movement that normally spreads the pressure out, but now you've got lots and lots of different pressure points on your vocal cords, what's going to happen? Not only are you going to get very tired from all that straining and, and tensing of your oh, muscles, yeah. but you're going to beat your vocal cords up. And that's what we see in these thrash metal singers that want to sing like this. Um, they end up with terribly swollen vocal cords, vocal fold hemorrhages, um, vocal nodules. Do they, they get scarring? <clears throat> yes, they often do. And in fact, you know, we, uh, the story of Jimmy Barnes, who's always told told us that he his, his ear, nose and throat surgeon said that he uses his second pair of vocal folds. He's referring to his false vocal folds. He's a growler from way back. 
and he now has terrible vocal fold scarring mm. and uh, and I believe has been told that uh, that his his voice is is well past its heyday now he can still get it to do things but he's got to work very very hard yes yeah. and um, 1970s rock type people will remember Jethro Tull and Ian Anderson the lead singer of that and we went and saw him in a reprise concert oh, a while back that does date me when somewhat I was a kid I remember uh, but he could not get the higher notes anymore mm. and, and in fact he was a bit grumpy because he'd fallen through the stage in South America and he had a broken <laughs> leg and he was in a wheelchair <laughs> Gosh, it just got better and better for him, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just a stage he was going through. <laughs> but, but he couldn't get the high notes anymore. Mm. And that's what we see once people have a vocal injury. And as I mentioned to you before, Adele, a very, very popular young uh, female singer at the moment, she's just been told she can't sing for six months because she's sustained a vocal fold hemorrhage. And her singing style is is very typical. Pink is another one who... And you can hear the growl in her voice when she sings some of her songs. Um, she's sustained, you know, vocal fold injuries that meant she's had to cancel concerts. And and so, you know, what you do with your voice and how you sound is a really big indicator of how well you're using it and how healthy it will be. Okay, now we have a personal story here because when I got home on Friday, Katie was talking like this. (laughs) What happened, Katie? Yeah, I was going to say I feel really sorry for the lead singer of KMFDM, but... um (laughs) <laughs> well, uh, so what happened to me was that, um, to make a long story short, I have a friend who's blind, and I record a talking book of one of my books for him, and uh, I'm an extremely dedicated person, and once I really get my head down, you know, working on something, I'm not going to stop. So Friday, I didn't have work that day, so I spent six hours in front of the microphone with only a 20-minute break around lunchtime, just... Uh, reading and reading and reading i finished the entire book i did like eight chapters in one day and uh my my by the end my throat was swollen i couldn't do the high uh, you know i couldn't make high sounds anymore just like kate said and yes i sounded exactly like my mom who has laryngitis at the moment and my dad thought that i'd caught it off her it was a very foolish thing to do so kate uh, i take it there are ways of using your voice that don't doesn't stress it so much that if you have an extended use uh, opera singers we talked on the phone about dame joan sutherland and how she was a, an athlete of the voice that's correct i mean what we do certainly in speech pathology and also as singing and vocal trainers is work with people to refine and develop their technique so it is at its most optimal and not only does it make their performance better but it reduces the likelihood of any injury so in fact it's like any coach or trainer or physiotherapist for a physical athlete by learning how to use your voice in a very uh, skillful knowledgeable insightful way by getting to know it very well and know what it can do know what affects it and working around those things so there are techniques i take it then so that you can talk for extended periods without uh stressing your voice as much that's correct go to any market go to any fruit and vegetable market and hear the hear the men uh in in the the stalls going oh. ten for dollar ten for Come on now, take photos! And they do it all day, many, many, many days a week. And we don't tend to see them in our voice clinics. Why? (laughs) Two reasons. One is they must have good technique. But the other thing is, and not a lot of people know this either, but men don't tend to get as many voice problems than women. 
Because men's vocal cords are a little bit tougher than women's and they don't vibe. Of course, men have lower lower voices, so their vocal cords don't hit together as, as frequently as women's. Ah. Uh, yeah, well, I have to say, when, when Dad got home and found me in that state, he gave me a telling off. He said, you'll, give, you'll permanently damage your voice if you do stuff like that. And I said, well, I'm, I'm not going to do it again in a hurry, honest. <laughs> All right, well... Speak- and that was when he said I should come on the show so I could be publicly told off live on air by a speech pathologist. <laughs> so, yeah, how many? How often would I have to do that before I ended up, you know, talking like an idiot permanently? Well, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think we, we'd say you're talking like an idiot, Katie. Because, no, well, let's face it, we all... Uh, experience times when we do thing, do any sort of physical movement in an extreme. So we go for a six-hour bushwalk and we haven't been on, on a bushwalk for months and months and months and we get home that night and we're really tired and we're stiff and sore for the next mm. couple of days. Oh, I slept like a log that night. <laughs> I bet. So, you know, ultimately... If you wanted to do that every day and that was your job... Oh, heck no. (laughs) There's certainly uh, lots of uh, techniques and insights to be gained from some voice training. Mm -hmm. And just knowing how the mechanism works, understanding that it's not like your arms and your legs, that it actually responds to illness, to fatigue... To emotional stress after all the nerves that that go to your voice box run through the part of your brain that controls your emotions so when we're highly emotional we lose control of our voice and that means we're far more prone to it not working as well as we'd like it to yeah my voice goes tight i've noticed when i'm nervous but personally i actually think the damaged voice sounds better than my real voice but um one thing i found myself wondering while i was working is I wish there was something I could drink or something that would soothe my throat, but I didn't have anything. I just had water. So is there anything? Like, I, I read that the guy who did the voice of Gollum, they, they created something they called Gollum juice so that he gargles like lemon and ginger or something to stop his uh, throat from getting too sore. Yeah, look, this is a very, very common myth, mm. I'm afraid. The notion that anything that we swallow can soothe our vocal cords is a myth. And in fact, it's physiologically impossible. because when we actually eat and breathe through the same opening that is our mouth and we have to divide where the food goes and the food and fluid goes and where the air goes and that division happens just above the voice box at the epiglottis so when we swallow food and fluid yes it goes down the back of our throat that is in our pharynx but at the point where it just hits our epiglottis it shoots off down into our esophagus and into our tummy so anything we eat or drink goes nowhere near our voice box of course Uh, maybe it should be something you breathe in then well i actually noticed that my sinuses got quite inflamed i I felt that if i if i blew my nose or sniffed it kind of had an effect what we do know though is that things like lemon and ginger um, and honey contain chemicals that coat the back of the throat and break down our mucus so that it's thinner. And Mm. so what people feel is a hydrating effect on the back of the throat. Because whilst we're talking, we're breathing in through our mouth far more than we would normally. Oh, yeah, I got so dry. Yeah. Now, when we breathe normally and we're not talking, we breathe in through our nose. And what the nose does is humidify the air. It makes it wet so it doesn't irritate or dry the back of our throat. When we're talking, we don't have time to do that. So a lot of the discomfort and dryness that people feel when they talk for long periods of time is just literally the drying off of the mucus of the back of the throat. That's why drinking makes it feel better. It's got nothing to do with the vocal cords, uh, though. Now, nah. I've got um, some audio samples. 
um, which I'm going to play. Now, here we have a very special guest coming to the studio, especially uh, to talk to us today. Now, see if you can pick the voice here. terrific on that recording and sorry about the quality but it was on a 1968 odd vintage tape machine with a probably a two dollar microphone wait a minute can you guess who that voice was I can. Yes. Can you? yes. Well, I wasn't born yet. That's my excuse. Yeah, did you? But I think I can guess. <laughs> yeah, that was me. That was me. I have a recording of myself. Uh, that my dad lived in the UK. He, he was at the staff college in uh, wherever, and we sent him audio recordings of ourselves, and we found that, and that's me at age about nine or ten. Already Aww. an audio file, Rob. <laughs> Already an audio file. Uh, but with a lisp. And did you notice my the different uh, inflection and different accent that I had in that? It changes as we age, does it not? Indeed it does. The whole system changes a lot. And you were talking, you were talking up here and you had a, <laughs> and you had a very short, what we call vocal tract. And what's happened is as you've, got, as you've grown up, your throat has got longer and your vocal cords have got bigger. In fact, they will have doubled in size when you hit puberty. And as a result, you now have these beautiful, rich, resonant tones of uh, of of a of a adult man <laughs> oh, <laughs> and no lisp, which is to your credit. Um, I didn't know you had a lisp. Uh, yeah, uh, very. Uh, I have a lisp like that, and I'm very glad as an adult that I do not have that. Now, I met somebody at a work context the other day. I don't want to say too much more, but the poor fellow had a really serious problem with his voice. I'm not sure what it was, but he talked a really high voice pitch like this. When I spoke to him on the phone, at first I wasn't sure it was a male. So we had this very high thing like that. And then at the same time, there was this undertone, and it was like a sort of rumbling going on like that. And it was very strange. And I've got to say, in a work context, it was probably a fairly moderate to severe disability because it affected our attitude towards him. Mm. And perhaps for reasons that it should not have done. Mm. But it was very hard to overcome that feeling that this person was talking like this. Mm. Is that a kind of a disability that you see? Look, to be honest, it's not a well-recognised phenomenon because it's something that happens all the time. We make judgments about people on the basis of how they sound with their voice. It's common law. And we know that because we put on different phone voices, for example. (laughs) We speak to our parents in a different way than we do to our boss as we do to, if we're in, in, a, in a sales situation, a customer. We change our voice depending on who we're talking to, and that is an unconscious response to the knowledge that people make judgments about us based on the way that we sound. And That's what my research was about that we were discussing earlier. Um, my Part of my PhD study some years ago was to look at how changing the sound of the voice influenced 
people's perceptions of their personality. And those findings were very, very clear and, and very strong findings, in fact. It was a little pilot study and we only got a few people to listen, but the, the findings were so strong we didn't, have to, we didn't have to keep going with it. It was very, very obvious. Really? Well, I have another audio sample for you. Uh, this one, it's from a movie and you'll recognise it fairly quickly, I think. And they're explicitly talking about how the voice sounds in a far rather creepy way. So here's, here's our next sample. Oh, agents, darling, you think you can dissect me with this blunt little tool? No. I, I thought that your knowledge... You're so ambitious, aren't you? Do you know what you look like to me with your good bag and your cheap shoes? You look like a rogue. A well-scrubbed, hustling room with a little taste. Good nutrition's given you some length of bone, but you're not more than one generation from poor white trash, are you, Agent Starling? And that accent you've tried so desperately to shed, pure West Virginia. Does your father, do you, is he a coal miner? Does he stink of the land? You know how quickly the boys found you. All those tedious, sticky fumblings in the back seats of cars while you could only dream of getting out, getting anywhere, getting all the way to the end. You see a lot, Doctor? But are you strong enough to point that high-powered perception at yourself? What about it? Why don't you, why don't you look at yourself and write down what you see? Maybe you're right. Oh, chilling, creepy, creepy stuff. What did you think of that, Kate? Well, it's very powerful. Oh, They're yeah. both fantastic actors. Oh, yeah. And they know their craft. And certainly um, you can hear in that piece just how moving and what an impact that just the sound of the voice can have. Yes, and even just listening to that in the studio now, I could feel the shivers down my spine. It's, it really is. So he refers to her accent as the West Virginian accent. She's trying to mask it. Mm. Now, I also have a bit of audio, which I may or may not play, of Jack the Ripper, <laughs> a famous case in which they... You mean the Yorkshire Ripper? Oh, beg your pardon, thank you. Yes, the, the Yorkshire Ripper, in which they were able to locate the uh, Southcliffe, South what his name was, to almost the, the village, the mm. very precise geographic location of where this guy might have been from. Mm. No, this, this is a fantastic case um, where they actually use forensic acoustics to break down exactly the features of his accent not his voice, but his accent. And we need to probably make a differentiation at the moment. The accent that we sort of talk about is made up of lots of different features. It's got to do with the production of vowel sounds and, and, and consonant sounds. It's got to do with pitch. It's got to do with stress patterns. And it's got a little bit to do with voice, but not a lot. So as a speech pathologist and as a voice scientist, we actually can look at an accent and break it down and describe it according to a range of specific features. So um, is it the case that if you try to mask your accent, the little bits of your old habit creep through and it's almost impossible to, uh, to, uh, for, for the perceptive, for, for the forensic ear to, to hide those completely? Uh, look, that's probably a really good 
a good debating point, actually, whether in fact we can completely hide what is our habitual uh, speaking accent that we do when we're not, you know, trying to hide it. Um, certainly we know that performers for years and years and years have quite successfully imitated others without us realising that we're listening to an imitation of, of another and therefore they must be overriding their own accent to produce another. And good actors, we will put them on... Uh, it, hold them in very high regard people like Meryl Streep, who because of the skill that they demonstrate in being able to reproduce an accent completely and perfectly. Convincingly. Oh, yeah. I watched Alan Cumming for years and had no idea he was Scottish because mm. I never, ever heard him use his real accent. That's correct. So this notion of what is habitual and what is skill all becomes very much... Uh, based in the individual. So making general rules about what you can do. I, I don't make general rules about people anymore because human beings are incredible and they can do things that we often don't think they can. Yes, remarkable. Now, is it a, it's a natural inclination of each of us to adopt the voice or the accent of the people we are among? That's do, do, correct. Do you see that, that, that uh, if I were to live in the UK or, or, or the US, that my, my voice would drift towards the local accent? Yeah, we, we see that quite frequently, especially in, uh, in athletes, in fact, international athletes. So I remember Mark Philippoussis years ago coming back from a long stint in the States with an American accent and completely unaware that he had one. Um, so yes, we do drift. But that's, again, about... reflects what communication is all about. It's actually about bonding and creating a relationship with those that we talk to. And so to form those relationships we often mirror what unconsciously mirror what the other person is doing and in fact we know in the science of body language um, we can manipulate uh, that information by copying somebody's body language as a way of putting them more at ease and getting them on side so in many ways we are hardwired to almost adopt the features of others around us as a way of bonding and fitting in it's with group them. group membership sort That's of thing. That's exactly right. It's a it's a form of group behaviour. Okay. Now my other daughter is a, is a very good uh, wind player, woodwind, mm. uh, flute and uh, baroque and recorder and so on. And uh, she talks about uh, diaphragm breathing. She does it as a matter of habit now. Mm. The wind wind instrument players are taught to breathe from the diaphragm. What's that about? Oh, Rod, I'm so glad you've asked me this question. <laughs> breathing from the diaphragm is a phrase that I get, I, I hear and I get asked about constantly. And it is a ridiculous statement, can I tell you? It is a ridiculous statement, not because when people say it, that they have the wrong intent. But we have to use our diaphragm to breathe. Okay. We can't breathe without our diaphragm. So and in fact, when people, have, legs? Yeah, when people have spinal injuries and the nerve to their mm. diaphragm is damaged, they can't breathe and they have to be put on a ventilator. For example, Christopher Reeve. So we always breathe with our diaphragm. And in fact... <laughs> When it, we're at our most relaxed breathing state, so when we are asleep, the only thing that moves to make us breathe is our diaphragm. Ah. So the notion of breathing with the diaphragm is an absurd statement. 
A completely absurd statement. What most people mean by that, I think, if they know what they mean, is there is a technique called diaphragmatic breathing. And it is a formalised technique used predominantly in singing and in wind instrumentalists because they actually need to control the air pressure in their lungs. Now, you and I don't usually feel the need to have to control the air pressure in our lungs because we speak in very short bursts. So we're going to have plenty of air to meet our our verbal needs. Ah. But if you're a singer or a wind instrumentalist, you actually have to keep air coming out of you for a very, very, very long period of time. So what we need to do is make sure that it doesn't all rush out at once, <laughs> which is what we want to do normally. Is that like uh, circular breathing? Because my sister told me about that. Perhaps Cir re really hard. Mm. Circular breathing, I don't know a lot about that. I but believe I think it, it's it different. Might, I think what? it might help with the needing to keep a continual supply of air, though. I mean, I'm not an expert. I was a string instrument player. <laughs> yeah, I, I believe uh, circular breathing is, is, is unique to particular instruments, and um, I... I think it's a, it's a skill that takes some practice. But diaphragmatic breathing is a technique whereby you keep your diaphragm contracted down because, of course, that's the way we breathe in. We actually contract our diaphragm down mm. and then we relax it back up. And the, by pulling the diaphragm down, the lungs open and air gets sucked into us because of the, 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 the change in pressure. And then to breathe out, we relax the diaphragm. And it inverts back up. And if you're just breathing quietly and you don't want to talk, air just rushes out very quickly. Uh, now, you can't, cont you can't sustain a long note on a flute or sing a long note easily if, in fact, air is going to rush out suddenly. So diaphragmatic breathing is a technique whereby people learn to keep their diaphragm contracted down whilst they're producing the note, whether that be on an instrument or with their voice, such that the air pressure coming out of them is much reduced and controlled by literally keeping the lungs open. Hmm. Ah, well, the way that she explained it to me, the way Claire explained it to me was she said, take a deep breath and watch, and she watches what I do. And I naturally, my way to do that is I lift my shoulders and I pull them back and I puff my chest out. And she said, the way... <laughs> No, no jokes about me. <laughs> More of a uh, pigeon than a rooster. Oh, and now I'm deflated. Boom, <laughs> boom. <laughs> Ice burn. Yes, two drums and a simple fall down the cliff. Boom, tish. Uh, <laughs> but um, the way she does it is she probably expands her chest that way, but also she pulls her, her lower abdomen out as well. Yeah. And maybe that's giving her extra capacity that she needs to sustain those long notes that you are referring to. Yeah, look, a lot of people, in fact, most people don't have any clue about how they breathe. It is so automatic. And so when we voluntarily try to do something with our breathing, we often want to use a heck of a lot of effort to do it. Now, in fact, breathe, taking a nice big deep breath by pulling the diaphragm down doesn't take much effort at all. But in fact, to lift the rib cage to get maximum expansion of the ribs, and pull the lungs open, which is the other mechanism that we use to breathe in, requires a lot more muscular effort. You're recruiting a lot more muscles. And so we think, yes, I'll take a nice big deep <laughs> breath and I'll work really hard at it. So I'll use my big muscles and I'll forget about my diaphragm, which is in fact just as useful as those muscles that lift our chest and, and 
um, pull our shoulders back. It's true. I just tried it. Mm. So yeah, try it at home. If you try breathing in and pushing out your stomach, not your chest, and it's a lot easier. And you get a lot more air. In fact, I read that that's how you're supposed to breathe. All right. Well, speaking of some more mellow tones, I'm going to play something which I accidentally started to play earlier, and that is something a little more. Mm, I think uh, Kate will like this singing better. Uh, <laughs> you're listening to the Fuzzy Logic Science Show with me, Rod. My guest. Katie, author of the Fallen Moon trilogy and uh, published in Australia, United States, Romania and Czechoslovakia. It's and the Czech Republic now. Czech Republic? Yeah, I have a reader who uh, corrected me on that. <laughs> oh, okay. And Dr. Kate Maddell, who is the director of the Voice Research Laboratories at the University of Sydney here on Fuzzy Logic. Here's something nice and mellow. David Bowie. the beautiful mellow tones of David Bowie and the beautifully played saxophone. I'm often not a fan of the saxophone because it can be very raucous and but that I I just like that sound. And now talking on the radio uh, as we do on Fuzzy Logic and I'm thinking on the way in how am I going to introduce our guest today? Am I going to say and here is our guest Dr. Kate Maddell and uh, Medill, Medill, you see, it's Medill. Okay, I'm going to get that right. But I'm saying, and how do I put the right inflection so that it sounds authoritative, sounds approachable and engaging? Because radio, I like radio because it seems, it feels like a conversation with a person. You listen to the radio and there is a voice you recognize and they're talking to me. It's not like in a big broadcast hall where you're just booming out across all the heads. So, Kate, how shall I say, and now today my guest is Dr. Kate Maddell. Today, my desk is Dr. Kate Medill. <laughs> well done, Rod. Okay, Lovely. Medill, or, but it's the, it's the inflection. What, what does the inflection communicate here? What it, well, inflection or intonation is the other word for it, is the change in pitch and stress pattern or the loudness that we hear in the voice. And it's one of the key elements that our radio broadcasters actually have to have a sense of and control over because as you said much much earlier in the show with your yes mm. presentation how many like how many ways could we say yes we could say yes 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 we can say it in so many different ways by changing the intonation so in fact intonation change or, or manipulation often carries the meaning mm -hmm. because I can go yes and not mean yes at all. <laughs> or I can go, yes, yeah, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> and it will mean so many different things. So it's in fact the, the radio broadcaster's skill to change pitch and intonation, but also maintain the link to the communicative intent. Because in fact... As you point out, some radio broadcasters, their aim is to have a conversation with the listener, a one-to-one -one intimate conversation. For other radio broadcasters, we've well, getting more and more information about now through our research, their aim is to not necessarily form a relationship with the listener, but just to give them information. So the newsreader's intonation patterns is going to be quite different to a, broad, a general broadcaster or, or announcer. 
to their intonation patterns. Different again will be a voiceover artist. Their intonation patterns will change according to whether they're a standard voiceover artist or whether they're a character voiceover artist. So if in fact they have to sell um, you know, used car, a used car sale, and they've got to actually add a lot of colour and information and say, come on down go to uh, uh, George's used cars. We've got the latest and greatest bargains and all you need is very different to forming, to the intonation you'll use and we're using to have a conversation. Oh, you know, what's fascinating about as you're doing that the bit of voice, uh, impromptu voice acting for us there, Kate, is uh, you're gesticulating with your hands at the same time you're waving your hands around it's it's you're throwing your whole self into that little bit of audio or that bit of voice that's exactly right and the voice doesn't exist on its own okay we can't pull the voice or look at the voice as an isolated unit it is part of a body and it's part of us of who we are how we and it's designed to express how we feel mm. and that is its other job other than protecting its airway it, our voice is designed to tell the world how we feel because when we were little babies that was the only way we got our needs met was to change the sound of our cry because yeah. we didn't have words to say oh I've got a full nappy or I'm <laughs> really hot or I'm really hungry so the, I suppose one of the things that a lot of people either forget or don't realise is that the voice and the sound of the voice is a reflection of us how we feel, who we are our deepest, most uh, real and authentic self. Self. So, you know, for when people's voices get into difficulty, they, it's very, very distressing because they can't actually be their real self. Oh, yeah. I, when I had laryngitis and lost my voice, it was horrible. And all the kids at work told me I sounded like Justin Bieber. I'm like, who the heck is Justin Bieber? <laughs> <laughs> but it was just so, I, you know, and then Dad's got hearing difficulties, so, like, I'm trying to talk to him, and he's like, what? I've lost my voice. What? <laughs> but I felt like a different person. Yeah. I mean, I, I, having had a voice disorder myself years ago and working with people that have voice problems, it is, it's very distressing because our voice is how we empower ourselves in the world we say i want this i don't want that you know we use it without thinking so much of the time and oh, yeah. when it changes and we lose access to it or it doesn't do what we want to do it's it 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 limits us in such a profound way mm. it can be very 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 it distressing changes how others see it and funnily enough i'm in the midst of writing a book at the moment in which the main character is due to have something like that happen i was originally going to have him become rendered mute because i thought that would be interesting but then i realized it'd be too hard so instead his voice becomes damaged so he sounds different and it's going to really add to the idea that he's so changed by the time you know his friends don't recognize him anymore and they're like what happened to you and it, it's like it'll add to the, the idea of him becoming a different person. Well, speaking of the voices that uh, Katie's referring to, I'm going to play a uh, trailer that one of her friends on the internet made for her for one of her books, The Dark Griffin, and it's a fabulous piece of voice work here. Oh, yeah. And that will take us out for uh, Fuzzy Logic for the week. But uh, before we go, uh, here's a quick pointer as to what's coming your way on Fuzzy Logic because there's lots of excitement, and you notice the excitement in my voice. The pitch is going, and I'm talking a little bit faster. I'm very conscious of this. He's grinning. Now I'm slowing down and I'm going to put more gravitas. Now he's frowning. So that uh, I convey the serious message of what's coming up. And uh, it's time now to say, oh, oh, Ask Fuzzy. Got to tell you about Ask Fuzzy. Um, listener uh, Tony uh, has uh, sent me a question for tomorrow's Canberra Times column, and that is, 
if you lose your hearing and you don't use a hearing aid, do you permanently lose the ability to process those signals? And interesting for me, very personal question, because as Katie mentioned, I have severe hearing loss in one ear. And so check tomorrow's Ask Fuzzy for that. And that's a fantastic story. In fact, one of the the people involved with the development of Australian hearing aid down in Melbourne, uh, Elaine Saunders, Dr. Elaine Saunders, I'm going to have her as guest on Fuzzy next month. And I'm going to go down to Victoria and I'm going to have a look at the labs and I'm going to bring you the story about that, which is terrific and inspiring women, inspiring women and inspiring Australians. Great to hear. So with that, thank you very much to our guests. It's been very entertaining and wonderful to have you on Fuzzy Logic, Dr. Kate Medill. Thank you very <laughs> much, Rod. It's a triumph. <laughs> and uh, you had no trouble pronouncing my name, Kate. Well done. Thank you. And Katie Taylor, also known as KJ Taylor, fantasy fiction writer. Thanks, Katie. As always, it's a pleasure, Dad. And we're going to take you out with the Dark Griffin trailer here. Fantastic bit of audio. Created by Natalie Van Sistine. Good on you, Natalie. Catch you next week. A griffin will often choose a man for his riches or his power. You want to live in this world. Find a human. Protect it. Keep it from harm. If you do, you will always be safe. No matter what his origins or blood, a man may rise above his past and become something better. You could be the first northerner on the council. Think about what that could mean. I have seen this city, and the council is plainly corrupt. We cannot allow this. You must destroy Arin Codexon. My griffin is dead. You left the Eerie without permission to hunt this griffin. No, he told me to go. Do you really think you can lay the blame for this on me? I have no choice but to relieve you of your post. No! You lied to me! You tricked me! I'm going to make them pay. I swear it. He's the most savage griffin I've ever seen. I'm surprised you're able to bring it back alive. That thing is a monster. Let it die in the arena. No creature deserves a fate like that. I'm fly! I'm free! So you're the northerner who used to be a griffiner. We've got a score to settle. Help me! Someone help me! Gods, Arin. What happened to you? They attacked me. Why are they doing this? Eluna was the only thing that made me more than a slave to them. I love you, Arin. And I'll go on loving you no matter what happens to you. Arin Cardiffson, you have been accused of an unspeakable crime. Ask him why I did it. Tell me what I have done. Tell them! If you choose the arena and you win the fight, you can go free. I want to fight the dark Griffin. Free me. I will. You were born to fight. The only thing you can expect him to do is kill as many people as he can. He is dangerous. What have you done? I will hunt him down for the rest of my life. This wasn't supposed to happen. You are not alive. You betrayed me. Don't think I'm going to forget that. Kill, human! I have come for you! The Dark Griffin. What would he ever have to live for? Revenge.